Water, Wood, Coal, and Oil, a roundtable discussion about energy in Canadian history. I mean, in some ways, it's just uh, putting energy, particularly the material nature of energy, more at the center of the story. I'm Sean Courage, and you're listening to episode 50 of Nature's Past, a podcast of the Network in Canadian History and Environment. According to a study by Richard Unger and John Thistle, Canadians consumed 430 petajoules of energy in 1867. Combining energy from animal labor, food, firewood, wind, water, coal, crude oil, natural gas, and electricity, by 2004, Canadians reached a historic peak of energy consumption at 11,526 petajoules. For reference, a petajoule is a unit of energy roughly equivalent to 31.6 million cubic meters of natural gas or 277 million kilowatt hours of electricity. Since Confederation, Canadians have been high per capita energy consumers, and our appetites for energy have grown substantially over the past 148 years. The way we consume energy has changed quite a bit over that time period, too. In 1867, Canadians drew energy primarily from organic sources, animal labor, wood, and agricultural produce. Since the mid-20th century, we've drawn increasingly from mineral sources of energy, coal, crude oil, and natural gas. This shift in energy consumption since Confederation has arguably been one of the most consequential changes in Canadian history. It changed our relationships with one another as much as it changed our relationships with nature. The history of energy in Canada is as much a concern for environmental historians as it is for social historians, political historians, and cultural historians. Energy history is an emerging field in Canada, but one with a long historiographical tradition. To learn more about Canadian energy history and the development of this new approach to thinking about environment, history, and society, I spoke with three Canadian historians, each of whom were part of an energy history working group at the University of Toronto last year. I'm Andrew Watson. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Saskatchewan uh, in the Department of History and the Historical GIS Laboratory. And I'm Ruth Sandwell, and I'm a historian. I teach at the Ontario Institute for the Studies of Education, um, OISE, and I'm also in the History Department at the University of Toronto. I'm Steve Penfold. I teach in the History Department at the University of Toronto. Welcome, everybody, and thanks for joining us for this roundtable discussion about energy history in Canada. And um, I guess... To get listeners familiarized with the topic, um, I wondered maybe if, Andrew, if you could start us off by giving listeners a sense of what energy history is. Okay. Well, I mean, uh, there's a lot of ways to come at this, but uh, I suppose a, a really fairly broad-based approach um, would be to say that energy history is sort of an examination of the social and the, the political maybe economic and environmental consequences of, of changes to the way that, that people harnessed and, and captured uh, and then may, stored and, and directed sources of energy and fuels. I mean, very broadly conceived, it's sort of uh, human attempts to manipulate, control sources of energy. And when we think about energy history, we're talking about almost all forms of energy. So coal, oil, nuclear power, wood... 
Absolutely. Biofuels, I think, uh, and, and sort of somatic uh, embodied energy in, in human beings and animals, as well as uh, plant life, biomass, um, is kind of an overlooked bit of, uh, I think, energy history. Uh, but I, I obviously, central to energy history is the use of fossil fuels and even nuclear energy, uh, wind energy and solar power as well. So it's a little bit different than... Um, previous approaches to the study of energy in history, I think, like, I think a lot of listeners who are familiar with Canadian history, especially Ontario history, will know a lot about scholarship on hydroelectricity, for example. Uh, so what distinguishes that earlier scholarship from this newer approach to energy history? I mean, in some ways, it's just uh, putting energy, particularly the material nature of energy, more at the center of the story, in that uh, when you think about the kinds of energy history that's been done before, it's often been done from different perspectives, like they were really interested in business-state relations or uh, interested in automobiles and driving or interested in domestic appliances or, or whatever. All of these things might consider energy in a kind of peripheral way, but in some ways energy historians try to put the actual flow of energy more central. And uh, as Andrew said, try to um, examine both the material and the social, so the politics and the culture, but also how much the the thing itself, the the type of energy, really shapes the way it is produced, the way it is, the way it flows, the way it moves from place to place, and so trying to, in a non-determinist way, uh, think about uh, the the sort of materiality of fossil fuel versus uh, you know biomass or whatever. So it seems like this kind of approach to uh, history makes it possible to integrate previous studies on hydroelectricity into thinking about the use of fuel wood or thinking about the use of kerosene, for example. So being able to compare between different types of energy sources in ways that historians perhaps haven't previously. Yes, and I'd like to you know, sort of emphasize that that's... Um putting energy at the center, as Steve said, is, is a big part of it. And I think another part is the, the recognition that there's been a, a huge earth, well, at least society changing, um, profound uh, change in the nature of fuel as we moved from the organic forms of, of energy, which are you know, wood, biomass, um, water power, uh, wind power, the difference between those forms of energy and moving to fossil fuels. And I think from the perspective of the early 21st century, when we're dealing with some of the the consequences, particularly with, with climate change, of burning fossil fuels, that it's easier now to look, like to separate out the, the form of, of, of energy from things like the study of technology or the study of progress, which kind of naturalized um, the, the transition from uh, from you know organic forms of energy, which ultimately all come or mostly all come from the sun, to the forms of, of, of fossil fuel energy, so coal, oil, natural gas, and um, nuclear power is in there as, as another modern form of energy. So um, so the recognition that the modern world, in quotation marks, modern, the world as we know it is very much a product 
of the new forms of energy and the very different ways that um, that they work in terms of being, uh, we're able now for the first time in human history to have huge stores of energy that we can draw on more or less at will, as opposed to having to, to capture trickles of energy that come to us from the sun, through uh, largely through photosynthesis. This, this seems like a central part of the literature and energy history, and this comes out of some of the work by uh, Wrigley and others comparing these two types of energy flows of energy and stocks or stores of energy. Um, and I think in all of the work that we do, we confront that quite significant distinction between organic flows and mineral stocks of energy. Um, so maybe just to situate uh, listeners in terms of your own research, uh, Ruth, if you can tell us, uh, and then we'll go around the table, uh, what uh, each of you are doing in terms of your own projects on energy history. Well, my own uh, work in energy was was kind of came out of my work as a social historian and as a rural historian, and my particular focus now is on the way the ways that changing kinds of energy used in the home uh, transformed daily life for Canadians over the last hundred hundred and fifty odd years. So my focus is on just how much daily life has changed as we've moved from, for example, uh, burning wood to get heat uh, for heating rooms and also for heating our food, how that's changed um, as we move to using electricity or natural gas and, and oil and manufactured gases as well in the early 20, late 19th and early 20th century. So that was my original focus, and that's sort of emerging from that research and that project I'm calling Heat, Light, and Work in Canadian Homes. That the research for that is, is done, but in the process of doing that research, I became really aware of, of how little work there's been done on um, on energy sources um, at a very basic level. So I managed to get together a group of historians, including uh, Steve and um, Andrew here, uh, to create a, a kind of a primer on energy, and that's turned into a book called Powering Up Canada, where there are different chapters that provide a, a history of each kind of discrete forms of energy. So, for example, we have a chapter on food, which is a little case study of pemmican and its influence on the, on the fur trade, and we we have chapters on on um, water and, and wood and wind power, chapters on, on um, hydroelectricity, on um, coal, and Andrew wrote, and, and oil that, that Steve wrote, and uh, nuclear power as well. Uh, so Steve, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your contribution to this anthology and the, and the broader project that you're looking at. Yeah, so my... Um uh sort of my specific research is uh, I'm interested in the conflict between uh coal and oil systems particularly in British Columbia um you know you can think of that sort of coal to oil as a sort of inevitable linear transition from one form of fossil fuel to a more energy dense form of fossil fuel and I'm kind of interested in the way uh, this is handled in terms of political conflict and new political discourses and how people sort of think about a new energy regime as particularly British Columbia, of course, it's local coal and it's foreign oil, at least until uh, the 1950s. So how they kind of handle that transition from a local source of energy to a foreign uh, source of energy. And uh, this is centered around this uh, battle that Duff Patello, the, prim the premier in the 30s in British Columbia, had with the uh, largely American oil companies around prices of oil. And so that kind of fed in a bit to Ruth's collection, where I have a sort of broader history of uh, petroleum, 
uh, trying to think a bit about, I mean, the, the story of petroleum is largely one of more and more use. Like, it's not a stunningly happy story. And at some profound level, it's not that complex. It's just kind of more, 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 and more. And um, uh, but then at the same time, it's a it's a whole set of human choices that kind of produce that that result. So um, this is kind of what I'm interested in: the sort of material power of oil, but then how that becomes cultural and political uh, conflict, but also cultural and political power. And Andrew, you look at another fossil fuel. You're looking at coal in Canada. Yeah, indeed. Um, I think um, sort of energy was sort of always part of my. Uh, my my grad work is my, in my MA and my doctoral research, but uh, Ruth really sort of jump started my my energy interests by getting me to uh, provide the chapter on on coal in, in in the collection that she edited. That's coming out uh, sometime soon, and um, and so this has jump started me into my my own larger project on the history of coal in Canada, and I'm I'm, I'm basically trying to um, look at the the consequences. Uh, for local environments, both at the consumer and the producer side of things, as uh, Canadians try to get a hold of coal, try to get it out of the ground, try to move it to markets, uh, figure out what it's best used for and uh, where are the most reliable uh, sources for, for, for acquiring coal come from. So I'm particularly interested in looking at the sort of uh, central place that Ontario plays in this, in this history. Um, Ontario has no coal deposits of its own. It's really became extremely reliant on American coal imports. Mm -hmm. And then there are moments where uh, coal shortages or threats uh, uh, that Americans might cut off coal supplies prompt the uh, Canadians uh, in Ontario, but also the producers of coal in Nova Scotia and Alberta to try and create some uh, energy security within the country, a sort of energy policy uh, to connect energy um, or coal consumers in Ontario with coal producers in Alberta and, and Nova Scotia, but also some attempts to try and bring coal into Canada from the United Kingdom, particularly Wales, and uh, and then secure uh, uh, sort of ongoing flows of coal from Appalachian coal region in the, in Pennsylvania. So it's sort of a look at um, at the economic and environmental, and then the social consequences of this this. Um, have not and and have dynamic between coal producers and coal consumers in Canada, and then uh, I'm actually also uh, my my postdoc's not really coal related so much, but it is very much energy related, and um, this has uh, brought me to the University of Saskatchewan to work with Jeff Confer on a on a big project called Sustainable Farm Systems, which compares um, social metabolism in Western agriculture between. You, North America, uh, part of Latin, parts of Latin America, and uh, a few places in Europe to look at the sort of one part of it is to is to um, look at the flow of energy through agro ecosystems in the past uh, to determine the basically the energy return on investment. So how much energy mm-hmm. needed to be put into these agro ecosystems in order to produce the amount of uh, plant and animal biomass that eventually goes off to market as as food products um, for society and looking at that energy aspect of sustainability on on farms over about two or three hundred years in the past. 
So I mentioned in the introduction to this episode that the four of us were part of a working group at the University of Toronto last year on energy history, and my own new research uh, uh, looks at the development of long-distance crude oil pipelines in Canada. Originally, I was interested in the environmental consequences of the construction of the and operation of those pipelines, and particularly uh, the frequency and impacts of uh, onshore oil spills. Um, but as I uh, participated in this group and became more familiar with literature and energy history, I've been thinking a little bit more broadly about the significance of these conduits for the transmission of sources of energy from sites of production to sites of consumption. And my own thinking on this has been significantly influenced by the writing of uh, Christopher Jones uh, and his book, uh, Roots of Power. Uh, so that's what brought me here to this energy history question. And I'm glad that the four of us can uh, sit down and talk a little bit about energy history in Canada. And Ruth, since you're the editor of this uh, forthcoming anthology on Canadian energy history, I wonder if you could tell listeners a little bit about what makes Canadian energy history distinct. Yes, it turns out there are um, a number of things. Um, perhaps the most well-known is that Canadians are uh, among the, the largest per capita consumers of energy in the world, and they have been for 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 most of the last two or three hundred years. Not, of course, always with, with fossil fuels, but um, a lot of that is explained by the fact that we're a northern nation that is cold and dark, and uh, so we need lots of energy for um, for heating. We need uh, lots of energy for for food, and also for for lighting. And also, as a resource-producing nation, we also have um, c consumed in the last 150 years, uh, consume a lot of energy in extracting um, natural, uh, or natural resources from, from the ground and from the water. So, so we're really huge uh, actual per capita consumers of, of energy. We also, it turns out, we're, we're quite a bit later than, than other industrialized countries in making a shift from the organic energy regime um, to, to the mineral regime, which is the fossil fuels, hydroelectricity, and, and nuclear power. Whereas Britain had made the shift to coal, away from wood primarily, and to coal by 1845, the majority of its energy was coming from coal. It wasn't until more than 100 years later, about 1955, that Canada was had reached that sort of 80 to 85% threshold of, of being an, an, a, a fossil fuel-based nation. So not until so, the mid-20th century after the Second World War. That's, that's right. And still, at the beginning of the Second World War, Canadians were still getting more of their energy from wood than they were from oil. So coal, as Andrew would tell us, um, did have, have, have a huge role, but, but primarily, well, there's a number of explanations. One of them, um, and the most compelling perhaps, is that we had so much wood in this country, with the exception of, of, of the prairies. Wood was available, it was cheap, and, and it did the job for, for a lot of both um, home heating, cooking, and also for a lot of industrial processes, and also for transportation. Wood was a, a big part of fueling the, uh, the CPR, for example, for the first, the first years of its existence. So, um, so those, are, those are the two probably biggest differences. Um, another difference is that Canadians are distinguished from 
specifically um, most European countries, by relying on, on quite a, a variety of forms of, of energy. Now, of course, they're mostly uh, fossil fuels and nuclear power, but whereas other countries are, um, you know, fueled mainly by, by one thing, such as oil or natural gas, uh, Canada has, has shifted, as other countries indeed have as well, through um, from wood to coal to oil to natural gas and uh, nuclear power. But we have, uh, in Canada, we still rely heavily on a variety of them, from, you know, wood pellets, for example, today are a small but significant part of, of heating, and people use natural gas and electricity for um, for for domestic uses and also industrial uses. Now, I guess there are some idiosyncrasies to Canada's energy history, but of course, um, I think in all of our projects, we see transnational influences on energy consumption patterns with some geographic specificity. Um, and it seems certainly by the second half or the late 20th century, Canadian energy consumption looks a lot like other Western industrialized nations. Is that true? Yeah, I yeah. think that's the... Uh, sorry, Andrew, did I interrupt? I think the... Um, uh, like, I agree with everything uh, Ruth says, and I think it's uh, absolutely central to understanding the kind of different trajectories that different places take through energy history. You know, but at a kind of another level, there's a way in which Canada ex experiences a similar or, or a slightly different mix of things that happen elsewhere, the big transitions from organic to mineral, uh, you know, the assertion that energy starts with the assertion of a kind of human dominion over nature. You know, these are big international things um, that people begin to see, particularly by the later 20th century, uh, high energy use as an inherent part of the good life, like that that's uh, the way they configure their lives. And in fact, they build it right into landscape, uh, often in ways that erase the energy use part of that equation. And they begin to see that, you know, people think lights and cars are important, um, but they don't necessarily think of that uh, as energy use. And so I think that some of those big stories are very, um, are, are bigger than just Canada, but it is also true that Canada takes particular uh, paths uh, through those big trends. Uh, I should also point out, I think, too, that um, Canadian energy history in some ways is not very national in mm. the sense that, um, uh, you know, if you think of electricity, for example, um, electricity is tied to, you know, production is tied to nature in some way. And so the kind of mixes of, I mean, it's, it's one power when it comes out of your electric socket. But of course, the nature that goes into producing that one form of power is quite different in different places so that, you know, Ontario is more heavily dependent on nuclear, uh, BC on hydro, you know, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, so it's one power source, but often different forms of environmental stories that go into the production. Um, and ditto, you know, we've never really had a, a sort of national electricity grid uh, or even a national pipeline grid. These are kind of hybrids of provincial and continental dynamics. Um, and in fact, uh, attempts to really make uh, energy into a, a truly national thing have often not gone very well. <laughs> you think of a national energy yeah. policy or uh, and so on. And so there's ways in which it, it's profoundly federal in character in the sense that Ottawa is often present and mm -hmm. um, uh, it often is a lot of federal provincial conflict, but it's not fully national. And so uh, it's actually, this is to me what makes it partly really interesting in that the nation is always uh, something that's at play and needs to be a kind of analytic variable, but you can never assume the way it plays out in a kind of national way.
I guess, Andrew, you see some of this in your work on coal. Um, and and I, I agree with you, Steve, that there is uh, regional variation in Canadian energy histories, plural, uh, but various efforts at the federal level to try and establish yes. federal policy for energy. Andrew, I wondered if you want to talk about some of those efforts in terms of managing or regulating the flow of coal as an imported energy source or as a domestic energy source. Yeah, I would I definitely agree with uh, the things that uh, that Steve and, and Ruth have been saying. I mean, there's uh, energy is a nice thread that goes through most of Canadian history, and in an attempt to try and explain the the, the existence of a, of a country like Canada, looking at the way that energy was harnessed in order to bring the country together in various ways is is I think very fruitful. Um, for the history of coal, I think. Um, what really strikes me is that, and, and I think there's some parallels with other kinds of energy history in Canada as well, is that there's a weird tension on the one hand between the abundance of energy that Canada has, the different forms of energy that we rely on, as Ruth was saying, and the, uh, and the difficulty sometimes in, in getting access to uh, and bringing to market the, this abundance of of energy, mm. um, and this this is a, a very obvious case. Is I think, well, at least from my perspective, is the history of coal, where there's such huge quantities of coal in the Maritimes and in in Western Canada, but they exist very far from the places that are the main consuming markets. Uh, you know, mainly Ontario along the Great Lakes and um, and uh, Saint Lawrence in Quebec. Um, but I think the, there's similar parallels too to um, you know sort of early sort of colonial history in in Canada, where uh, Canadians were very good at clearing the landscape of, of fuel wood and then and then struggling to try and get, get, maintain access to enough fuel supplies in an organic regime. And then uh, I think even uh, Sean, your your work on on oil pipelines is sort of parallels. I think the history of coal to a certain extent, both geographically and politically. So there's these efforts, I think, to try and create um, some political power out of an attempt to bring actual energy power um, to Canadians. And I think there's, that's a, an interesting thread that runs not just through Canadian history, but does a very good job of explaining uh, why Canada exists as a nation. And I'd like to, uh, yeah, I think that's an excellent uh, point, Andrew. And to, to go back to, to somebody that, that Sean mentioned, uh, Chris Jones, and in his, particularly in his book, Roots of Power, has done a, like a great job of showing how fossil fuels, it's their transportability, the ease of, of, of transporting something, particularly like oil through a pipeline, but the fact that it's actually worth transporting oil. It's so dense, and coal as well. They are mm -hmm. so dense, even though they're so heavy, they are so energy rich that it makes sense to transport those across an entire continent, for example, whereas fuel wood, it, it actually wasn't. Um, it wasn't worthwhile to transport it more than, than a, a few miles, I mean, where, whatever country that you live in. So in a way, the nationalization of, of, uh, of energy is a product of, of being a fossil fuel nation. I mean, those are, are integrally related, which again provides, as Andrew was just saying, a very interesting perspective on, um, on Canada. Could Canada have survived as, as a nation without, without fossil fuels? There's an interesting story with oil and coal. In Andrew's case study, the difficulty of moving coal and the expense of moving coal made Canada anomalous or seemingly anomalous as a country with 
super abundance of sources of coal in Western Canada and the Maritimes, but still imported coal from the United States. Later in the 20th century, uh, as Canadians used more oil, they sort of replicated that same anomaly being super abundant in sources of oil from Western Canada, but continuing to import oil internationally, but for the opposite reason, because of oil's easy trans, uh, transportability, that transoceanic shipping from Venezuela and the Middle East uh, would be more competitive than pipeline shipping from Western Canada. This yeah, I think very, there's a... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, this is a very interesting discussion also, because part of it is the... Uh, the energy density of fuels that make them you can you can actually move them, but also the requirement of moving them because oftentimes the sources of uh, uh, you know where they are in the ground, coal and oil are far from where people want to use them. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of interesting. But on the other hand, too, um, it is political and social uh, dynamics that kind of produce some of these conflicts and that uh, confederation makes these natural differences into political conflicts. And so the way, um, you know, you set up institutions that bind Alberta to Ontario and Nova Scotia to Ontario mm-hmm. uh, sets up uh, a whole set of political conflicts that in a different institutional configuration might not occur. Yeah, there seems to be two, in in thinking about the distinction of Canadian energy history, there's two factors that really stand out. Um, and it was really evident in uh, Matthew Evenden's new book, Allied Power, that I just uh, read recently, and we did an interview with Matthew that'll appear in an upcoming episode of the podcast. But uh, there's the politics of confederation has a, a plays a significant role in um, hydropower policy during the Second World War, which is the topic of his book, uh, but also the geography of the country. So this combination of regional politics and physical geography of the country um, produced regional variation in energy outcomes for Alberta, British Columbia, Ontario, and Quebec uh, in the case of uh, power control in the 1940s. Yeah, I think the idea of networks is, I think, really uh, instructive as well, right? I mean, we're sort of dancing around the, this this idea, but networks is uh, is... Uh, could be th- could be thought of in a non-energy way, of course, but really most networks are really quite reliant on on energy. I mean, Ma- Matthew Evidence's book is is all about uh, bringing together these hydropower networks, but also our our discussion about bringing coal into Ontario or or trying to find markets for oil is always, I, I think, about creating the networks because um, energy. One thing I think that that unites uh, the focus on energy history is this uh, this sort of struggle to release it. It's always stored up in places. It always wants to, uh, you know, energy always wants to to um, move towards entropy. Um, but the human the human challenge is always to to find ways of of utilizing it and releasing it in ways that are useful for human beings. And uh, so humans are always creating these these systems, these ordered systems that require extraordinary networking that of course require extreme uh, sort of concentrations of capital uh, and political power in order to make them effective and uh, useful for human beings. So I think looking at networks is extremely important. And again, I mean, that sort of points to to one of the, the differences between our world now and the world before fossil fuels because a lot of that mediation between people and energy accessibility in the world was um, done not to say that there weren't networks of course there were networks of, of energy distribution before fossil fuels but the relationship that we bear to that network of 
fossil fuel and, and hydroelectric and uh, nuclear power is very different than the relationship of somebody, um, say, in 19th century Canada wanting to, to cut down a tree, um, you know, to, um, to uh, heat their house in the winter or to, to cook their food. Um, you know, it, we have a very different relationship to each other now because of the complexity of the grids that are possible with fossil fuels and the levels of expertise that are, are involved. I mean, all we have to do basically is pay and, you know, flick a switch and we have light. Whereas before, when people had to make candles out of lard, you know, in the, in the early 19th century, um, you know, there was a considerable amount of people's own energy. And if I were to say what is the biggest difference between our relationship to energy now is that people used to have to expend so much of their own labor and their own expertise in, you know, um, extracting energy from the environment to use, whether it's by growing a garden or hoeing a garden and harvesting the produce and, and preserving the food in a country like Canada because we have such a, a short growing season, so preserving it for, for use. So all of those negotiations are, we've kind of, um, they're done now at the level of network, or so many of them are done at the, at the level of network um, or uh, and done automatically rather than through, I'm thinking about my furnace, you know, which hmm. I turn on every morning, but I know I could have automated that so it comes on automatically and goes off automatically. I think that's a really good point, Ruth, and uh, it reminds me of uh, of, a, of something that Steve said closer to the beginning of of this conversation too, was which was the importance of flows and, and perhaps network isn't uh, a fundamental enough uh category of analysis that actually looking at flows is much more useful um, because it gets at the effort, uh, the efforts that human beings make at whatever scale. And that's an interesting element for energy is that you can be multi-scalar by looking at energy. You can quickly transition, I think, move between different scales to try and answer how humans uh, uh, interact with different fuels and sources of energy, uh, all in an effort to to direct the flow of energy toward useful purposes, and uh, so I guess um, networks is actually now that I now that I think hear you talk about it is actually a, a, probably a just one facet of of our attempt to create uh, useful flows of energy. But it's but it's huge. I mean, it is. It mm. does. Those networks do define our lives now, um, for sure. Right. So I want to ask a broader question to the panel, because I think this came up in the the working group last year, um, that energy history, I think, speaks more or speaks beyond just the field of environmental history, that um, that it has uh, the possibilities for rethinking other uh, subfields of history, social history, gender history, cultural history. And I'll start with Steve, if you can maybe talk about how you see energy history moving beyond the boundaries of just environmental history, but into other fields. Yeah, I guess in some ways, um, and it goes back to the first question of what is energy history, that um, I sort of think of it as a bit of a chat room in that, uh, you know, a lot of people can take a lot of different approaches and bring those to the history of energy. So you can be a political economist and talk about capital uh, and government relations, but around energy and sort of contribute to the conversation. You can be a social historian and, and contribute from your perspective. But it works the other way as well, and that energy goes... Uh, and teaches things to other fields uh, that are important. You think of, you know, the literature on post-war suburbs that focuses on uh, homes and women's culture and, uh, you know, coffee groups or Tupperware or whatever. Uh, but, of course, that's premised on uh, 
cheap oil, uh, both to pave the roads, to to make the Tupperware, to but also to fuel the cars, uh, uh, to fuel the bulldozers that rip down the trees, uh, you know, to build the highways and so on. So uh, that's just one example of a way in which you know historians working on say gender or urban history or cultural history uh, can take account of energy as the sort of foundation of all the things they're kind of talking about. Yeah, I might just add a couple things that come to mind right away, especially in terms of Canadian history, is that, um, you know, really important categories of, of Canadian subfields in Canadian history, like the Staples thesis or labor history or, or even uh, urban history, uh, these are all fundamentally tied up with energy questions that in some ways sort of get get um, a little bit hidden or obscured by some of the other important uh, uh, questions that are being asked in the scholarship. But the, uh, as, as I think Ruth was mentioning earlier on, the ability to, you know, pull out the, the raw resources from Canada, whether the fur trade or timber, wheat, uh, cod, any of the big staple histories are very reliant on, or it's, it's actually, it's not just the commodities that are going out, it's the energy embodied in these, in these resources that, uh, that makes these histories so important, right? They're, it's an energy return on investment. I mean, these things would not have happened. These, the efforts to pull timber out of, out of uh, the forests of Canada wouldn't have happened unless the, 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 the energy being put into it was worth the energy that, got, that came out of it in terms of value. Mm-hmm. And similarly with labor history, I think uh, looking at, you know, you can do it from a Marxist perspective or otherwise, but looking at the sort of the energy captured in, uh, in labor um, that created the industrialization and the politics that came out of this is these are all questions of access to energy, the organization of energy, and and who has power over the the labor in a in a human body. I think these are all these are and there's a variety of other ways to go at it too. But some of the big categories of Canadian history are in many ways structured by energy, and so I think there's a lot of really interesting conversations, not necessarily for revision, but for um, rethinking or, or sort of uh, um, coming at it from a different angle. No, I agree, yeah, completely, and my, my own work on, which came out of um, my interest in history of the family and in, in, in rural history, the, the lens of energy has given quite a different look at that. So when I'm looking at um, gender relations and the, the um, division of labor inside the house, but I'm using the energy uh, lens now, I'm really uh, changing the way that I understand the relationship, gender relationships, because I'm uh, looking at the way that energy is, is, is used. So, for example, um, I now believe that an important part of the explanation for why women did not enter the, uh, the formal workforce before, um, in Canada before um, the 20th century has to do with the fact that they were very occupied um, on a daily basis on uh, obtaining energy from their environments and, uh, and through the purchase of commodities as well. So it was women's labor that provided the food that, um, you know, that went on the table and labor of, of men, women, and children in rural areas who provided that food and the preservation of food. And it wasn't until um, 
the energy delivery systems uh, changed, mm-hmm. that the burden of providing that that kind of energy, uh, you know, with heat and light as well, where uh, women were very involved with, with that as well, that when those changed, that's when women were able to, to say, okay, I'm going to go into the, to the workforce and I'm going to sell my labor because I don't have to spend all my time now, um, you know, cooking and providing light and heat and, and other forms of, of domestic work. Yeah, I think, Ruth, you've previously talked about the significance of automated thermostats uh, as a sort of liberating technology. That's right. And, yeah, there's been a a, a Montreal historian, Emanuela Cardia, who's done um, an econometric analysis of census data in in the 1940s showing that women could not participate or doing a correlation between what kind of appliances that women had in the house, particularly what kind of stove and what kind of heating they had, and um, washing machines, and, and showing that there was a strong correlation between whether they had had those machines and whether they went out to, to work in, in, in the labor force. So, um, yeah, so interesting uh, rethinking, I think, needs to be to be done and not to be deterministic, as, as Steve was saying earlier, mm-hmm. but just to say that there are these material factors about our relationship to our environment and, and how we get energy from that environment are huge and like, they're in a way so huge that they've been invisible. Yeah, and in my own field in urban history, um, I've seen similar ways of thinking about urban history from an energy perspective. And this in urban environmental history has has been around for quite a while, thinking about urban metabolism and the flows of energy uh, that um, allowed for dense concentrations of humans to live in the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands to the millions um, by the 20th century, uh, that those flows of coal and oil and electricity uh, were absolutely fundamental to the uh, large wealth producing cities of North America in the 19th and 20th centuries. Yeah, what interests me about this is that these are um, huge questions. Like, you can't get much more fundamental than this kind of stuff. Like, these are really deep uh, fundamental transitions and, you know, moving energy flows across massive distances. But at the same time, they're quite small questions as well in the sense that, um, as Ruth said, you know, the thermostat, uh, which in one way connects you to this enormous network and a whole set of decisions about how to connect one place to another and how to make energy flow from one place to another, but is often experienced in these really small kind of transformations like you know energy producers have to bridge the distance between Alberta and Ontario but they also have to bridge the distance between you know your electric socket and your computer or your phone or your car and the gas tank and all or the 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 gas station in your car and so on so there's all these little small things and in some ways the changes are are sort of slow and incremental but massively transformative at the same time. And so, I mean, that's just like the stuff of history, right? The way these small kind of changes play out in terms of bigger transformations over the long term. Yeah, and there's a there's a connection, a fun connection between energy history and histories of technology and science as well. I mean, um, the the our, our ability to increasingly harness greater and greater quantities of energy and create these networks um, are very reliant on the 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 sort of the twinning of uh, of of these of these energy sources with technologies that are able to to utilize them, and uh, so there's a certain amount of technological lock-in on the one hand but also uh, a sort of um, a sort of a commitment or a, a reliance on on scientific understanding uh, 
engineering, so to speak, that, that these sources can be made uh, understandable and useful and reliable. Um, and when those two things come together, right, this idea of technological lock-in, this reliance on, on scientific understanding, we get what I think most environmental historians are most interested in, which is often the unintended consequences of humans thinking that they've got everything figured out. The creation of these ordered systems, the expectation that we can go to a higher and higher order of, of, of harnessing power and directing it to useful purposes, um, always ends up coming out with great consequences that perhaps, you know, if you compare, as Ruth is saying, the efforts to provide heat and light for a, a single rural home, the consequences of screwing that up are a little bit less than the consequences of trying to provide heat and light for 3 million people on very large networks. And I think an interesting part of a really interesting part for environmental historians is that energy, the attempt to harness greater and greater quantities of energy has greater and greater uh, material, material unintended consequences for people and the environment. Something that I think John McNeil looks at in his book, um, Something New Under the Sun, but a lot of uh, energy historians these days are, p are paying much more attention to. So, well, actually, now it's finally in the news, too, around climate change oh, sure. issues, which, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. Well, this is the other interesting thing about science is, and engineering. It not only produces the consequences, but actually uh, helps us understand and critique them. You know, the ability to measure carbon in the atmosphere is a product of technology and science and actually is the basis of, of uh, understanding the consequences of the technology and science that actually produce the, mm -hmm. the problem. So I think we've made a pretty strong case that this is uh, uh, sort of an emerging and exciting new way of thinking about Canadian history. Um, uh, I'm going to go around the table now, starting with Ruth, and, and get your wish list, uh, as it were, for uh, what new research you would want to see in Canadian history uh, in the future. What areas do you think, uh, if, if there are graduate students or faculty out there who are interested in studying energy history in Canada, uh, what would you like to see uh, done? That's, a, that's a, a, a big question because, in a sense, the field is wide open. I mean, you could look at, um, well, there's, just, there's so much work to be done um, on, all the, on so many of the issues that we've been uh, talking about, the, the relationship between energy history and just about anything you want to think about probably hasn't really been done or if it's um, been done somebody has, has you know perhaps written one article about it mm -hmm. so myself my own interests are really about the way that our engagement with with, um, with energy has occurs in the course of our day-to-day -day lives i'm just really interested in the hugeness of um you know, of these networks, as Andrew was saying, or just of our engagement, like what we need to do as people is get energy so that we can live, like that's how we live, mm -hmm. food, energy, light, heat, um, all of that, let alone trying to, to make things and sell them or use them. Um, that's, and so I'm just, I'm fascinated and would love to see more more and more research on how those those changes at the level of everyday experience, both rural and urban, in terms of day-to-day -day life, have transformed human experience over the last 150 years. All right, Steve, what's on your list for new Canadian energy history topics? Yeah, I think I, I agree with Ruth that just more of it would be uh, my first kind of wish. <laughs> uh, 
more people doing it and um, and more people doing the kind of variety of of levels and topics that could be done. Like you know, you think of Andrew's work on coal. I mean, we have nine trillion studies of coal miners and very little on you know what people actually do with the coal. Um, you'd think people just mine it and don't actually ever use it. Um, also, the I mean the the other thing is uh, we have a lot of hydro, partly driven by the interest in governments and and uh, you know the provincialization and the public companies. These archives are just open, uh, and so trying to get into kind of oil, uh, for example, where there's a lot more private privately owned archives that aren't always open. Uh, it's a bit of a challenge, but more I think more oil would be good. I also would be like to hear just more about the kind of, uh, some of the stuff Ruth was talking about earlier, the sort of, um, I don't want to say lingering, because it sounds so uh, progressive, a, a Whiggish a narrative, but sort of lingering organic regimes within the emerging modern fossil fuel kind of regimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was struck when I was doing my research in British Columbia when they started talking to coal dealers uh, in the 30s, how many said that the biggest threat to their coal sales was actually sawdust. And so the way in which, um, you know, uh, these wood regimes survive, why they do, how they do, uh, and and also just the sort of the early, you know, I think we all kind of are interested in the 20th century, but in some ways pushing uh, back and trying to understand that earlier organic regime would actually be kind of interesting. Both its survival, but its but its its power before modern forms. So I guess more uh, and and also just more at a multi-leveled, multi-approach kind of kind of way. All right, Andrew, what do you want to see? Well, if we're going to do more energy history, I would love to see uh, historians do a little bit more partnering with. Um, people who work more on the sort of hard sciences side of things. Uh, I've been quite privileged to be part of a project that includes uh, several historians, but also a lot of uh, agroecologists, social ecologists, uh, uh, climate scientists, agronomists, and the, the ability... To, that, that you have as a historian to make sense of the materiality is so much is, is much more enhanced if you have if you're able to I think um, understand how to how to play with the numbers a little bit I think uh, um, looking at the materiality is 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 an important part of it but historians I think need a little bit more training or at least need to partner with with uh, with folks who can do a little bit more of the number crunching to figure out things like embodied energy and uh, conversion factors and things like that to help us understand pretty much every aspect of energy history. But the um, the one thing I, I would echo a little bit, uh, I'd like to see a little bit more of is some things that Ruth was getting at is sort of this, what were the what were the sort of the the trends or the forces behind which. Um, the average Canadian or even the uh, just the average person in the 20th century began to lose a sense of where their energy came from. How did that become obscured to the point where we consume energy so easily and readily without having any idea at all where it came from? I think that's a particularly interesting problem. And actually, uh, the flip side of that is... Uh in what moments did they become profoundly aware of where their energy came from and why yes. did those moments occur? And yeah, I, I agree with you that that's, and write down, as Ruth says, at the kind of household level, how were people thinking through where their lives were being produced? Well, one of the great things about that, or one of the, the most interesting things, especially for Canadian historians, is that our shift to the, to the fossil fuel regime mm-hmm. happened so late 
that there is an abundance of at least oral history uh, records because people, and I've certainly interviewed a lot of people who grew up without electricity, without oil, without um, um, any of the, the modern fuels. So it, it is actually, and there's there's been a, there's a tremendous archive in Canada of interviews that were done, particularly in in the 1980s and 90s, that, that document that. So I think it's a, I, yeah, I agree that it's such a rich. Like we we have that, you know, we have the living memory of of that massive tra- transition that happened so many decades and even centuries ago in other countries. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it would be that would be great. Yeah, on my own wish list. I mean, I'm I'm profoundly interested in that late transition to a fossil fuel energy regime in Canada, and and in particular, I think there's there's a lot of need for more research on natural gas and the extension of natural gas as a heating source. Uh, across the country in the second half of the 20th century, uh, turning home heating into um, that kind of invisible uh, connected flows or networks of, of energy um, uh, from from even earlier fossil fuel uses of coal, where at least the materiality of coal or oil as a, as a regular delivery or purchase uh, was more observable than natural gas, which was uh, an invisible source of energy that just magically appears in your house. <laughs> So um, hopefully we've given listeners a bit of a taste of what is uh, interesting and exciting about the field of energy history and, uh, and what uh, Canada and studies of Canada can add to our global understandings of energy history. Uh, I want to thank everyone for uh, sharing their thoughts on this. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Ruth. And thank you, Steve. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Nature's Past is produced with support from the Networking Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by Steve Penfold, Ruth Sandwell, Andrew Watson, and me, Sean Courage. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes page at niche-canada.org slash naturespast, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast through iTunes and YouTube, and leave us comments. Please let us know what you think about the podcast by leaving comments or writing a short review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash naturespast or on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash naturespast. You can always find out more about the environmental history research community in Canada from the Niche website at niche-canada.org. And you can find out more about the topics we talked about on this episode on our show notes page. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with another episode of Nature's Past. Charge to limits or lines to be found Borrowed from friends and believers Some say that I'm running out